Hello. Hello. Before we get started this week, just a quick request for you to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Do it. We've been getting a lot of new ratings lately and we're so appreciative. It's really exciting and it feels so good to know that you're out there and that you're enjoying the podcast. And we have a new review. Um, Every new Apple Podcast reviewer gets their very own Badass Lady Meter rating. This review is from iTunes user JSchools. JSchools. Your baddest lady meter rating is a magical cup of tea that soothes all your worries and takes them away forever to a distant land. I don't know where she gets these from. I'm so bad at coming up with them. Do you want a baddest lady meter rating? All you got to do is review us on Apple Podcasts. Yeah. Thanks, guys. And now the episode. Hi, I'm Grace. And I am Madeline. And we're Dragon Babies. Dragon Babies. We reread our favorite YA fantasy classics and discuss why they're maybe even better for adults. Yes. This week, Stardust by Neil Gaiman. That's the sound of Stardust. If you didn't know, it can be reduced to a really kind of sad onomatopoeia. All the magic and glitter removed. <laughs> Grace doesn't like my sound effects is what I'm getting here. (laughs) No, I love all of your sound effects. Mm -hmm. So Stardust is a novel that was published in 1999. This is not our first Neil Gaiman book. Please check out our Coraline episode if you're interested in more. This is a very special episode because this was a listener request from Rachel. Rachel, thank you so much for listening and for requesting Stardust. Every listener request is a very special episode. It's true. And we've been doing a lot of requests lately, but... We have so many. We're having a great time. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, keep them coming. We do have a long list. And it takes the pressure off of us for being like, okay, now we have to choose one book in the world of books. (laughs) It's so easy. So please help facilitate our job as podcasters. I think Madeline should, you know, lead off the discussion here. Um, because this is a book that she read when young and I did not. Yeah. So I read it when I wasn't that young. I have a distinct memory of finding it on the little gold cabinet in the downstairs bathroom Mm -hmm. at the Bentley Street Mm -hmm. house um, because mom probably left it there and then I grabbed it and... I read it very quickly. It's a very fast read, faster yeah. than I remembered. Um, and I was probably around, I was probably in high school, like probably new high school, like 14 years old. Um, which I think is an appropriate age to read this book, which we'll get into mm-hmm. further just with the classification of it and all. And um, I, I mean, I absolutely liked fantasy still at that time, but definitely the reason why I kept reading it is because there's a super sexy part, like a little bit in. Right at the beginning, <laughs> yeah. there is full-fledged intercourse. Yes. which Full-fledged is Full-fledged intercourse. intercourse is what I like to call it. <laughs> Hot. Yeah, it's in greater detail than most um, 
It's definitely the most explicit sex scene in anything that we've done on the Any podcast. book we've covered, because and also this isn't, too. And this isn't a YA book. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not classified as such, uh, as it's an totally Instagram commenter pointed out when I posted our next episode. <gasps> we got shaded. <laughs> a little bit. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> we got a thinking face emoji with, I didn't know that was YA. <laughs> Why? I think a big part of this podcast is well, that it's our why is anything that you want exactly. It to be. And for our purposes, we'll just explain right now the books we cover. Um, we classify as young adult in only our own personal sphere. Like you might we encountered them, them when we were young adults. Yeah, yeah. you might not That's find them in the young here. adult section at a bookstore. So, would you like to describe the cover of the edition that you stole from our mother in the downstairs bathroom? I gave it back. <laughs> I borrowed it. I think she still has it. Okay. So the book that I read, there's been a lot of different editions of yes. this published. Yes. Uh, on the cover of the one I read, it I like it a lot because it looks kind of like a grimoire. Mm. Um, and it looks like the strap closing it has the star on the end of it with the, the shooting star depicted in it. Uh, it's like the Artemis Fall books that have the print oh, on yeah, the front so that they of. look like a big leather bound right. tome. Mm-hmm. So that's what it's like. Um, it says Neil Gaiman big at the top and then Stardust big at the bottom. Uh, and other than that, it's fairly simple. Uh, but I do like it. You know, there's definitely something to be said for a simpler cover. Um and I don't really find anything wrong with this. You know, I, it's not super exciting, but it's I like it. I think it's interesting in that it doesn't necessarily convey the content of the book. I wouldn't immediately pick it out as, you know, like a pre-Tolkien high fantasy mm-hmm. type story, or at least a story that's playing with that sort I, of uh, subgenre. I think it's probably because Neil Gaiman has enough name recognition and mm-hmm. appeal for that's why you know they get it so big at the top there for you to know what this probably is just yeah. based on his name. Well, and it it's it was really interesting for me to read this not having read it before but also having had like a bit of a Neil Gaiman fall like I've read we reread Coraline. Mm. I reread the Graveyard Book, and I also have oh, been I reading love that book. It's so good. It's a really good book. And I've also been reading American Gods for the first time, mm. um, which is crazy amazing. <laughs> um, if you if you want to try try something that has truly everything you could imagine, I've <laughs> all been in trying, one book, I recommend it. I've been trying to force my boyfriend to read Sandman, and he put the first book in his trunk the trunk of his car instead of reading it for reasons unbeknownst to me and now can't read a book when it's in the trunk if there's one thing i say about reading that's it (laughs) the front cover is rumpled because he put Um, his basketball scoreboard on top of it nick is on blast nicholas (laughs) so to finish out our marketing breakdown page turning yeah get those page turning sounds um madeline is going to read the back of the edition that we reread just so you can get a bit of an idea of how the publisher chose to portray this work i listened to an audiobook which was actually read by neil gaiman himself which was really fun that's awesome yeah uh so there's a lot of accolades i'm not gonna read those don't read the accolades yeah (laughs) just there's a little we don't care (laughs) (laughs) young tristran thorne will do anything to win the cold heart of beautiful victoria even fetch her the star they watch fall from the night sky But to do so, he must enter the unexplored lands and the other side of the ancient wall that gives their tiny village its name. Beyond that old stone wall, Tristan learns, lies fairy, 
where nothing, not even a fallen star, is what he imagined. From number one New York Times bestselling author Neil Gaiman comes a remarkable quest into the dark and miraculous in pursuit of love and the utterly impossible. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. So uh, what we typically do at this point is quickly spoil the plot um, with a rundown for anyone who hasn't read the book in a while or who may not have read it before. Um, And I'm going to attempt to do that. So before I even start, the first thing I need to say is that Tristran is the most difficult to pronounce name that I've maybe ever come across. And I knew that we were going to be discussing this. So as I was reading it to myself, I would often say his name out loud just to try to get myself comfortable with it. Didn't work. So I'm probably going to stumble a lot and probably just call him Tristan at points accidentally. Tristan. I know, but it's (laughs) so hard. T-R... Followed by T-R in one word is just, it's difficult. Yeah, it's not an English, it's not a normal English language thing. And I learned that the film adaptation that came out in 2007 that was made of this book, they changed his name to Tristan because they didn't want to have to say it. That's so funny. They couldn't Yeah, I've never seen that movie. Me neither. I'm really curious about it. Are there like big names in it? Yes. Did it do well? Um, it was well received. I don't think it did well mm. in the box office. We should watch it then, maybe. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I'm down. I'm definitely down to check it out. It, it would has, be fun to watch um, a good movie. It has Claire Danes in it, um, and Henry Cavill. I don't know how to say his name. Um, but like 2007, <laughs> Henry Cavill, which is like who so was he? He was like a little baby. Yeah. And Charlie Cox as Tristan Thorne. Yeah, oh, Tristan yeah. Thorne, Tristan. killing me. Tristan. I don't Sienna know. Miller, Robert De Niro. Oh, Nick was telling me about this because he has seen the movie, and he says that Robert De Niro plays the pirate captain, but he has a giant part. Oh God. Okay, so they made a significant adjustment. To yeah. The plot. Yeah. Sounds like it. Why didn't they just cast him? I don't know. They should have cast him as the small, hairy man. (laughs) (laughs) Charmed. Or um, as Tristan. Uh, (laughs) That's a choice. I'm 18. (laughs) I'm 18 and I'm terrifying. That's my Robert De Niro impression, (laughs) apparently. I've never done that before. Okay, let's, let's get to the plot. So Tristan Thorne is a boy of 18 living in a town called Wall, which is a day's ride from London, um, somewhere in rural England, and is also the border between our human world and a land called Fairy, which is a place of sort of unknown magics and mischiefs. Once every nine years, there's a market that takes place in a field between wall and ferry that's a sort of boundary that both sides can cross into. Most of the time, wall guards the entrance to that meadow and they won't let any humans through unless they seem like they're on some kind of uh, secret quest. Um, Trip. Uh, yeah, or they're just tripping real hard. <laughs> like, okay, you can go. There's on. a line that's like, unless they had that look in their eyes that showed right. the guards that they knew that they needed to follow through. It's like, okay, so they were just really high. Yeah. <laughs> that's fine. Um, Tristan, I'm I'm just gonna yeah cram a bunch of plot together. He is the child of a human man and a fairy woman. And when I say fairy, fairy queen I mean, or princess. She's so she's a lord, a lady. <laughs> she's a princess. No, they're lords and ladies. Okay, yeah, but for all points and purposes, like those were the princes that all die, and she was a princess. 
Grace has made a big eye face at me. But I think it's important that they're not princes and princesses because I think that speaks to a larger conceit about fairy as a whole and that it's not like this united kingdom that everyone is under. It's more a collection. Okay, uh, sure. No, I think you're right. And I'm just being grumpy. Let's about talk. It. I want to talk more about that. I think it's part of what Neil Gaiman was specifically trying to do in mm-hmm. writing like mm-hmm. a different sort of fantasy story. But let's talk more about that <laughs> after we get through the plot. His So his father and his mother conceived him on the night of the fair um, at the the two two times ago, eighteen years ago, two and times he's ago, grown up thinking that he's fully human, but um, his mom is just like me doesn't really care about it because she knows that it's not her kid because she didn't have that baby. His yeah, his human mother, <laughs> who his human father is married too. So he's in love with a hot girl in town just because she's hot. Um, yeah. And she laughingly tells him to go find the falling star that they see. Because she's fall like, from the I'm sky. not going to marry you just because you think I'm hot. Rightfully so. Yeah. Um, and he is so lovesick, but also clearly a part of him is yearning to return to mm-hmm. his right. homeland. Yeah. Um, that he decides to go and do it. So he sets out on his journey. He meets the star, who's actually a lady. And then he and the star are bound together through his quest to try to return with her to Wall, all the while other folks trying to find her as well for their own purposes. Because there's a really cool melding of the two plots. Yes. Yeah. Three plots. Many. More than two, yeah. Um, because a falling star occurs very rarely in fairy. Um, for, for how huge and boundless it is. And there are a few different uh, goals that the folks searching for the star have, which we'll get into. Throughout this, Tristan and Yvain learn to respect and understand and then eventually care for one another. And in the end, they return to all. Tristan learns his true past. Um, and, and I appreciate how he just accepts it. Instead of having to be a whole like, Ooh, I know. instead he's just like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. I, yeah, it, it's great when his mother addresses him and is like, all right, son, let's go. And he's like, okay, mother. Yeah, that's <laughs> his first acknowledgement that that is his mm-hmm. mother, um, even though this is coming from a boy who has lines like, I'm talking to a tree, you're a tree, in <laughs> different parts of yeah. the book. He's doing a lot better by the end. He grows, he grows quite a, a bit. Yeah. Quite a bit. He goes from a character I absolutely detested yeah he's terrible in the beginning um, and then he grows up who's like all male privilege and Mm -hmm. nothing else yeah to a leader and Mm -hmm. someone who truly (laughs) sees women as people which uh he definitely doesn't at the beginning right yeah like a lot of people don't we'll get into all those details um the happy ending is that he and the star Yvain spend their lives together he is actually the right, the rightful lord of Stronghold, which is a, it's a region, a region <laughs> in fairy that we see from the start, and is kind of besieged by unrest as the various heirs try to it's got some issues, kill each other off to see who's going to get the throne. It's pretty brutal, and um, they fourteenth century. Medieval times, shenaniganery. Okay, I'm very sorry. I just realized I've been saying Stronghold, and it is Stormhold. They return to Stormhold. Um, he lives out his life. Tristan dies, and then Yvain goes on to rule. Forever? That's kind of the how it seems. She has a star. It's a sad ending. Mm-hmm. Um, it's extremely sad. Yeah, yeah, and I was sad. 
it's very, um, you know, the elves <laughs> watching the humans die in Middle Earth, um, mm. like the passing of man and like the immortals being left to kind of mourn it all and watch the end of the world. <laughs> that's the vibe that it's I like got. That's that scene in, um, I think it's Two Towers when. Uh, Elrond is telling Arwen what will happen if she marries Aragorn and mm-hmm. talking about how like he's going to die and that, that you know she's just going to be like broken and miserable like I have a really hard time still watching that scene sort of kills me a little bit it's kind of just like prescribed depression that's going to come at some point Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and that's really the fundamental problem with human immortal relationships and all fantasy um that's what it comes down to like time is not on their side and it's on yours um and that's why immortality has always frightened me so much as a concept because you have to witness everything like you have to watch the world literally burn right and when it comes down to it then your life would be pointless as well if you didn't have like an arc well that's the yeah exactly you can't you can't have life without death everything has to have a partnership i would spend every day playing video games and eating ice cream until i was so depressed that i like walked into the ocean or something yeah like immortality would not be good (laughs) exactly it actually that duality perfectly pairs with the story of wall versus fairy and Mm -hmm. how i feel like in this book the human world has to exist for the fantastical world to have meaning Mm. and i think it's really interesting that the market is something that's appealing to both humans and the denizens of fairy um and that everyone's excited about and travels for and they're interested in this kind of co-mingling of the two worlds and the fact that beings can change beings from fairy can change when they enter the human, the regular human world, right. like the star yeah. changing from a woman to a just rock, a rock, a that's literal fallen, fallen from space. star. Yeah, that's um, what they tell her. Yeah, and they don't, they don't uh, necessarily say that science is incorrect or anything like that. They just say, yeah, if you it's cross into their world, you will be what their rules dictate that you mm-hmm. are. Yeah. So this is Neil Gaiman's self-described fairy tale for adults. Um, I think. It's a really interesting book to break down in terms of who it is intended for and who might get the most out of it. Um, And kind of leading into that discussion, I'd like to hear from you, your thoughts rereading it as an adult versus your 14-year-old perspective. Yes. Well, when I was a (laughs) 14-year-old, it was troubled times in, in in my head, in my heart. In my soul. I was really into reading fantasy books as I was when I was a kid. And then it was really important to me as an early teenager because the real world was just not a place I wanted to be living in. So I loved books like these. And I still find this book to be a really good escape. Um, It's, I mean, it's just very easy to tell from reading it that the author is incredibly skilled as a storyteller because of the way the different elements all fit together so well. Uh, Yeah, without the feeling of like, oh, we all ended up in the same place at the same time. How did it happen? Right. much more skillful than that. Yeah, he's just, he's really, he's very good at what he does. Um, 
And I liked it a lot when I was 14 because usually I would read epics, um, but sometimes I would get a little burnt out on that and be like, okay, I just want a standalone book that I can just read without being like, now I have to read the other nine. <laughs> um, we love time. <laughs> we love time. <laughs> I wasn't going to. I wasn't going to. God, I read like six of those. Um, and that's why I like this book so much because it's like a really – lovely encapsulated world uh that's just so well done i love the characters in it um it i still found the ending to be incredibly sad uh and it's i actually don't really want to talk about it too much more because i don't like endings and this ending was brutal yeah we've touched on this in some other episodes um we really <laughs> really tend to like value our endings based on how depressed they make us at mm -hmm. having to leave that fantasy world and also at the fate of the characters mm -hmm. um, and obviously this isn't a new concept like people like happy endings but I think it runs deeper for us especially as two like very sensitive people who are mm -hmm. also like pretty hardcore into escapism and also have problems with depression yeah um when I feel like I am having to leave characters permanently in a really defining way, it's really, really hard it's to get through that. Yeah, it feels like a death. It's very painful. Yeah. Like the sense of loss is, mm -hmm. yeah. So overpowering. with that, <laughs> yeah, that's all I want to say about the ending of this book is just because it is so... Do you think it was harder for you to reread as an adult than it was when you were a teenager? Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes in certain ways, I'm better in control of my emotions now than I was when I was a teenager, um, just because I've gotten better at dealing with them. But then in other ways, I am a more expansive person now. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I've just lived longer, so I know more things, as mm -hmm. is commonplace. Um, so sometimes things hurt more. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I can understand that. So anyways, that's I want to end on that. So note. A, story, <laughs> a story of personal suffering <laughs> from Madeline. <laughs> it's I mean, it's a good book though. I enjoy it a lot and I really I just, yeah, it's it's good. It's good. So I'll go I'll just talk about my first impressions um since I haven't read this before, but something I absolutely loved was that this book opens with an epigraph that is the John Donne poem song go and catch a falling star i knew grace would be so into that because it features prominently in Howl's moving castle and neil gaiman and diana Wynne jones were also oh. good friends when she was alive um and oh. it all just felt like such an exciting little package for me when i opened on that poem i was like oh i mean i knew i was gonna love this book already like i said it's been my personal season of neil gaiman <laughs> but I, that just made me so excited to dive into it. Yeah. Um, and I found this great quote that Neil Gaiman had about including that poem as the epigraph. He said, there were things I knew I wanted to do going into it, one of which was very quietly to almost offer a reply to John Donne's song, which is the single most misogynist little piece of poetry in the entirety of the English <laughs> language. It, it isn't very kind to women. It's true. No, yeah, no, no. Um, and 
I love that his response was a book that's just filled with really complex, nuanced female characters, and then a male protagonist that is so straightforward (laughs) and simple. Um, And he gains nuance, honestly, I think, through exposure to these female characters. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you think about it, all the men in the book are pretty single-minded. Like you have the lords who, both dead and alive, are still obsessed with trying to figure out who is going to be taking rule of Stormhold. Mm -hmm. Um, You have Tristran who just wants to like get some action from the girl he finds most attractive. Um, And I really appreciate that that was part of his intent when he created this Mm -hmm. and why he paired that poem with it, which is, you know, on its at face value, it's about a falling star. But the poem is about all the impossible things that you can be told to do and the even greater impossibility of a woman staying faithful and true to you. Um, Whereas the book is really about the flip side of each of those things. Like it is possible to catch a falling star and I would imagine to find a mandrake root and all the other fantastical lines from that poem. And then throughout it, the star, Yvain, is like the truest and most faithful figure in the book. Mm. Um, And she is always true to her word Mm. once she is indebted to Tristran she you know stays with him for the rest of the story and ultimately for the rest of his life but that's because her own emotions enter into it yeah um but I just thought that that was pretty cool yeah I liked that the book opened with that well put that poem also serves as a really good uh, just sort of clue that we're going to get a lot of interplay between common myths and folklores and fantasy elements um, and then also a specific era in human time it was really interesting I thought that this story was not just set in like the olden days Mm. but very firmly in the early Victorian era yeah like exactly placed yeah we get all these little tidbits like Charles Dickens is just starting to write Oliver Twist and um, the moon was just photographed for the first time queen victoria queen victoria is young Young. and that in itself also reminded me of diana Wynne jones's books especially um both howls and then also the crestomancy books where we get really specific details about a period in human history and tale of time city i mean she really does this in a lot of her work um but then also it's interplay with very shades of diana Wynne jones shades of dwj dwj Um, and it, and it makes sense that the two of them were, uh, friends and that they would like read each other's work and comment on it and things like that. A modern C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien, only one of them wasn't a jerk who said mean (laughs) things about the other's work. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yep. That's true. So healthy friendship. Moving forward from talking about the role of female characters in this book, I'm really curious to hear what you think Lady Una's motivation was in conceiving Tristran. Because that event, and we mentioned it a little bit already, it's the like fairly explicit sex that takes place at the beginning of the book when mm-hmm. Tristran's father and Lady Una, who at that time we just know as a slave of a witch who mm-hmm. is at the market, um, 
they, you know, conceive him at the market that night. But it seems like maybe that happening was a spell of some kind because there's a gentleman in a tall black top hat who says that Tristan's father will have his heart's desire at that market. And it's clear that he thinks that Lady Ona is pretty, pretty hot when he meets her. Mm. Um, But then I also thought that maybe that was her knowing that she needed to provide some kind or attempt to provide some kind of male heir to a strong Stormhold. Stormhold. What is wrong with me? To Stormhold. It's okay, Grace. Um, and, sh- and it's because she conceives him and then the, you know, many other events that unfold after that, that she is freed from slavery because she fulfills the two Mondays meeting on a day when the moon loses her daughter. So I... Which are the terms of the... the um, breaking the contract servitude. of slavery, yeah. yeah. Being lifted. So I think that... I don't know. I just think it kind of makes sense for every reason for her to do that. One, she's enslaved. She's, mm-hmm. you know, her life is bad. She's probably lonely and bored. And, you know, maybe that I feel like there's a spark of her too, just being like, oh, this dude is like decent looking and he's into me. Like, why not? <laughs> what have I got to lose yeah. in the, my current situation? Um and then, yeah, also sort of a, a fate or magically influenced type mm-hmm. thing where she conceives an error from that. Uh, and because, uh, yeah, it's all part of actually freeing her in the end. So right. maybe she was kind of doing it for her own sake. But in honestly, it feels much more in the moment than that. It doesn't feel planned out. It feels more just her like her being... Yeah, I agree. It doesn't whatever. seem like she's aware of some kind of prophecy or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that makes sense, too. I think I was just looking for greater meaning in it because there are so many other interconnected events. Um, and yeah, it's totally, I mean, it's totally possible that there was magic influencing it. It seems like that's probably part of the story, but I think it's also random fate, random chance entangled with fate. Okay. That's my take I'm on happy it. with that. Okay. <laughs> it's just so hard to have... I mean, you know from the start of the book, and it, it's a funny start, uh, you know that the man that you're following is not going to be the protagonist because he... Uh, I forgot that, actually. Yeah, Tristan's I didn't realize father, it um, until he went back and married the girl. And I can't even remember like, his oh. name. Right? Dunstan. Dunstan. Another really <laughs> easy to say name. name. <laughs> Follows the same convention. Well, it even um, telegraphs the fact that he's not important because his name is Dunstan. Dunstan. No, exactly. Like, and he's described as he he really only cares about farming. Um, he when he meets with his um, you know lady love that he's courting, they discuss the science of crop rotation. It is dull as heck. <laughs> um, and he really doesn't have deeper, greater ideas or yearnings um and that's that's him that's Mm -hmm. dunstan um and so then when he meets someone fascinating intriguing of the land of fairy and they hook up like it's pretty obvious okay yeah so the child will be the one who's the actual hero of the story Mm -hmm. um but i like the way that it opened and that we really like brush those characters aside um his father entirely like he never really (laughs) has a role 
all in the book again, even when he tells his son his true origin. Mm-hmm. It's um, just described in summary. Yeah. Like, right. Uh, it's not even on page. Like, yeah. It's not on screen. Exactly. <laughs> it's just a paragraph that's like, during that long walk, they discussed everything that he needed to know. <laughs> so it's, it's d- different from the bad dad theme that many of these books have, but it's definitely a, an absent dad situation. Just like irresponsible. Hands off dad. dad yeah. And, and then his, to a fault. And his mother's never going to f- be able to feel real. Uh, love for him no, clearly mom not into him um <laughs> <laughs> my mom's just not into me <laughs> and she's not even his mom i mean she's she's just because someone isn't the bio mother doesn't mean they can't love a person they doesn't mean they can't be their mom well right but in but this situation not. she is she just, does everything yeah. to stay separate from she him. obviously feels that since she's not his bio mom she can't be his mom well i can't even imagine being a Newlywed, and then a baby shows up, and you're like, judging by the age of this baby. Let me do some math. (laughs) Uh, When did we get married? And also, problem. And he's six months apart from his sister. Right. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, like, every, you know, even the folks in the village who might not know the specifics are aware that, like, there was something going on there. and the what I liked actually is that he and his sister do by the end of the book develop a better relationship. Yeah, because at the after the time they he spends really away from mean her. anything to each other. Well, yeah. she bullies him. Is like right, actively she's mean. cruel. To yeah, him. yeah. But I like to see a good sib, good sib relationship and in, when, when in a fantasy back, story. Yeah, then Especially because the other sibling relationships are seven brothers trying to kill each other. Um, yeah, <laughs> the brothers are so funny. Yeah. <laughs> We're also related to Tristran. <laughs> They're all his uncles. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love that uh, Septimus, the most murderous one, is um, like basically looks like a slimy, uh, evil cartoon prince <laughs> um, and is described as like pale and crow like. Yeah. Um, but oh, like true. blank eyes that hide horrible evil. <laughs> <laughs> I also, um, Primus had my favorite line from the book, which is when he's at the fake inn and the witch offers him some food and he says, due to my own suspicions, until I see my brother's corpse on the ground in front of me, I shall never eat nor drink of anything that another provides for it's me. It's really amazing. Yeah. And the next time someone's like, hey, do you want it's a like- beer? I just want to be like, is my brother's corpse on the ground before me? I think not. Uh, yeah, it's a good way to get people to stop inviting you to parties, <laughs> which is. if you're me, you might be into that. <laughs> They're all just so intense to the point that I was really pleased that they all die. Um, Grace is rooting for their demise. Well, I love that the ghosts are just following sadly along as the remaining brothers. Because they can't even move on in death from this murderous game and their family also has really strict rules about revenging anyone who is killed unless it's by a family member i guess so i think that that probably plays a role in them being held there because they're in this awkward uh, in between because they were murdered but they were murdered by each other and there are a lot of other great funny lines in this book too um i appreciate that that like i was saying earlier it's really a play on pre-Tolkien fantasy epics Mm. um, as opposed to being a straightforward one, which for some reason I always thought this book was. I thought it was going to be more like 
flowery language and like Linear. a full on exercise. Yeah. Oh. Um, yeah. No. I mean, it's and like a game straightforward. It, so it's gonna be clever. No, I know. Of course. Yeah. And like all the really fun allusions to just different um, like pieces of art from Victorian culture mm. um, and different fairy tale creatures. Yeah. Exactly. And he actually uh, so. Neil Gaiman set out to make this project in collaboration with an artist named Charles Vess, who does a lot of fairy paintings that are similar to James C. Christensen's art. So mm. like very involved, really beautiful, colorful, um, and fairies that have that sort of like medieval look to them almost in terms of like their garb and, uh, just like their general surroundings. Mm. I think it was important for them to represent like this fully Victorian fantasy, um, but do it in a fun way. Yeah, for sure. This is where I feel like Neil Gaiman is doing deliberate play with the structure of a typical fantasy story. Um, Because when you think about fairy, it's not being carefully built and Neil Gaiman says at the start that you can't possibly know how big it is the lands that people um, are saying don't exist in our world are fleeing to fairies so there's like a mishmash of different um, geographies that are kind of being pushed together and we don't get very many place names or like clear social structures it's more about just like the characters that come across Tristran and Yvain's paths um and everything is very fluid there just aren't those same like markers of place that I feel like in a lot of fantasy books you know you open and you have your map and like everything's Mm. very true to that specifically created world right and a map would make absolutely no sense for fairy and like isn't even useful especially when we have events in the book like uh, you know, seven leagues candle that's, or mm. however far it takes the user, um, that takes you great distances in a single step. And it feels like, you know, at times we're being told like, this will take 10 weeks. And then right. in other moments it's like, okay, that's done suddenly. Somehow. No, totally. There's a and distortion like, uh, of time and space. Yeah. And a carriage can become an inn. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like it also has some of the feeling of uh, Robin McKinley's book that we covered, Spindles End, um, where magic is so suffused in anything that like everything's very... um, Autonomous and can can kind of just unpredictable. Yeah, the lines are really blurred between reality and magic and there are all these different creatures who were humans once and like humans who were creatures once. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of that in this book. Um, And I love that it's so matter of fact when... The old witch, there are two old witches, but the one who has enslaved Lady Una is talking to um, like the great evil witch Mm. and she's having to be truthful about who's in her cart. And she's like, oh, a bird who's actually a woman and a dormouse who's actually a boy. Um, And uh, yeah, that's it. And the other witch is like, okay, cool, whatever. and she, her entire reality is also changed because she has a curse put upon her that she's never going to be able to recognize the star because yeah. that's what she's seeking. Um, so there's like a lot of play of that, uh, just what is real, what isn't. Yeah. Um, and it's all kind of happening in this really nebulous place um, that isn't clearly defined. And that's different from a lot of fantasy. That's what I was trying to say. I really like the the evil witch 
I think that mm-hmm. she and her sisters are Yeah, we haven't really, talked about them. Yeah, I think that she and her sisters are super well done. Mm-hmm. She's They feel very uh, grim brothers. Yeah, just totally Hans evil, Christian Anderson. Evil, yeah. willing to hurt other things for their own benefit. Um, the like denizens of the deep forest who yeah. are just like biding their time and messing with everyone. And it's really interesting seeing... Killing stoats and pinning their organs down. <laughs> yeah, it, it's really interesting seeing the one that actually leaves run through mm-hmm. her magic just really fast trying to get to yeah. the star and how she keeps getting foiled. And then by the very end, she's just... It again reminds me kind of... Um, Oh, but this is interesting because it's only in the House Women Castle movie, the Miyazaki mm. interpretation, where the Witch of the Waste becomes just like this harmless old woman who hangs out with them, but she still wants Hal's heart. That's why she still grabs Calcifer at bad time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's it reminds me of that, where the witch has just become this kind of doddering old woman saying like, you should have let me have your heart and talking to the star and then the star just leaves her. Yeah, it it is really reminiscent of that. And there's another level with the witches too, because they also have the mirror that's housing like their spirit selves Mm. maybe, or some other more youthful, also evil representation. Mm. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of complexity there. And there really is throughout the entire book. And I think it benefits from Gaiman spending so much time on specific characters and like, kind of disregarding the world Mm -hmm. as a whole because if you think about it we don't really know anything about fairy Mm -hmm. Um, right it it, it doesn't matter but there are these brief moments where it feels like there is a larger story that Neil Gaiman has already figured out Mm -hmm. like the hairy man um, or no not the hairy man the um, lightning thief captain the pirate um, the pirate captain drawing a castle to allude to what it means that Tristan's he knows been Tristan watched out is, for. Yeah. Yeah. Like folks have been trying to guide him in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Although he also has his own innate sense of what he's supposed to do. Right. Because there's he's the, from the land. world cohesiveness. Yeah. And there's a moment at the end of the book when they say, I think it's in the epilogue that like they may have been instrumental in dismantling the unseelie court. Oh. And Unseelies are the evil fairies. Right. Um, so there's also there's some like, kind of like... Maybe a larger plot. Right. Like brotherhood <laughs> of... It, make, it makes me imagine if the Lord of the Rings <laughs> were about like totally different characters who had nothing to do with the with battle the big for the plot. <laughs> like, carrying out stuff going yeah, Carrying on. out their own smaller quests. And at the end it was like, oh, but, you know, they crossed paths. Maybe they crossed paths with like Gollum at one point. And they like did something instrumental in yeah. setting him off in the in direction. The larger. That he goes yeah. They like pointed him to the Shire or whatever. or something. <laughs> yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. So I, I really, really like that. And that made this story super super fun to follow and feel really fresh you know what it's time for pretend food oh <laughs> it's very uh, athletic i've been watching a lot of sports lately because my boyfriend has the sports on the tv and i learned things about basketball like basketball players look really funny when they get in a fight because they have super long arms but don't know how to fight so they're just like Ugh. okay enough about basketball <laughs> let's talk about food pretend food the prominent food in this book is questing food, which I have no problems with. And 
Neil Gaiman is very responsible with his food discussion. There's even a funny line that's sort of meta in which Tristan is super hungry and he's thinking to himself like, oh, all the heroes in the stories that I've read never talked about getting hungry. About hungry like, yeah. Why is this bothering me so much? No, because yeah, he loves stories, like epic stories. Um, from the... Uh, Penny Dreadfuls, right? Yeah, the Penny Dreadfuls. Yeah. yeah. Um, that would come to their small town. Um, and that they would memorize because they would needed some kind of entertainment. Mm-hmm. He's trying to, you know, get his food where he can. Meanwhile, we also have a main character who eats only light and drinks only darkness. So. Yeah. So she doesn't really need <laughs> she's food. She's also like really resistant to hiding that. She insists on always being like, no, I don't want food. And people are like, okay, if you want to like pretend not to be immortal, maybe you should you have to try to like, pretend to eat. like you're yeah. eating, just like shove it under your chair or whatever. I think my favorite food is the, the mushrooms. Mushrooms. They they're mushrooms fried in butter with wild garlic. Yeah, I mean, it sounds friggin' amazing, and it also sounds like the kind of thing that I can't eat. Those are all foods Madeline can't have. Well, I can eat butter. Okay. It's not really a food, though. <laughs> Butter's the mortar that holds us together. Yeah. But I can't eat mushrooms or garlic, even though I love them, and that sounds really good. And Tristram wanting more of them because they're just so amazing. Like They, they sound just so delectable. I made a mushroom lasagna last weekend that was crazy good. Um, It was both a bunch of fresh mushrooms and dried mushrooms that you reconstitute and then you use the water from reconstituting them to cook them in. So it's like mushroom times three Um, with spinach and ricotta. And yeah, it was so good. Um, And I was thinking about that while reading about the the mushrooms. Um, Are there morels in there or no? Our mix, the one that I used, it's from Costco. It's a dried mushroom mix that's available at Costco. (laughs) Um, Costco. (laughs) There's probably not morels in it, though, because morels are too fancy. It it is like a fancy wild mushroom mix, but I don't think it actually has morels. But it has pretty much everything else. Um, I had morels once because we found some in the backyard, and Mom cooked them with butter and dusted them with saltines, like crumbled mm -hmm. saltines, because she said that's how her mom used to make them. Um, and they were really good. It was before my mushroom sickness arrived. Yeah, I am all for Which is literally a thing in our family that, that <laughs> happens. The mushroom sickness. So, I'll yeah. forever be jealous that I wasn't, um, you know, still living at home at that time. That there were like 20 amazing. of them. We just pigged out on morels. That's incredible. Yeah, it was amazing. Mom was mushroom so feast. excited when she found them in the pine trees. I also were both former vegetarians which probably also explains some of our mushroom excitement um Mm. because when you are vegetarian i feel like mushrooms are one of the foods that gets closest to meatiness Mm -hmm. without you know eating fake meat right um something that still feels like okay clearly i'm i am not accidentally eating meat right now which also isn't a good feeling when you're a vegetarian um but yeah they always just bring out a special sort of (sighs) lip smacking good ew (laughs) I grossed out, Madeline. Um, there's also lots of good bread and cheese. Um, I love when they arrive at an inn and they have bread loaves so hot and fresh that they exhaled steam as they were cracked open. Yeah, that sounds good. Oh I've, my gosh. Well, I've also wanna... been baking a lot recently and that oh, just I'm made me want to get, get to the stand mixer. I'm really <laughs> like, eating today. I, I seriously, when I was finishing reading this morning, I was like, do I have time to go bake a loaf of bread right now? <laughs> 
Grace herself lives in a fairy tale. Yeah, so. I try to. Yeah, I do my best. Um, and there's so many different types of beer. It, I know Madeline doesn't drink, but I love beer. And they have, like, they call out, um, at one point they're having porter, um, something called burnt ale. I'm not really sure what that means, but it's poisoned. The unicorn saves Tristan from it, so he doesn't actually Maybe they, like, toast the hops. Um, yeah, I don't know. And also just the finest beer at one of the inns that they go to, which they don't elaborate on. But yeah, give me your finest beer, please. We got to go on a tour of those breweries. Um, speaking of poison, that is an important component of the pretend food in this book. Um, yeah. We have poisoned spiced eels. We have poisoned post-coital wine. Um, and then we also have a... Gross. Do we also have a... It's exactly what it is. <laughs> I'm just going to keep saying gross when Grace says things I don't like. And then drugged herb mix that is sprinkled onto roast wild hair um, that leads the older of the old witches to only be able to speak the truth. Yeah. So in fairy, it's important to watch what you eat. Not for your figure, but for your demise. Yeah, because it will kill you. Um, I also appreciated the role, like the smaller, subtler role that food played, um, like the theoretical rice pudding that really kicked off the entire quest because Victoria came to request ingredients for rice pudding from the grocer and I love rice pudding. Tristran, um, tried to flirt with her about rice pudding and And that didn't work, (laughs) but it was the rice pudding that brought her there. Um, and also, okay, this, this part was strange, but, but like I was into it as, as now not a vegetarian and a meat eater, um, Primus roasts overnight a hedgehog that he balls in clay and then puts in the embers of the fire. Right. Um, and then cracks open the clay ball and he has like perfect roast meat. And all I'll say about that is just that it reminded me of going camping, um, and <laughs> did you roast hedgehogs? A good old hedgehog on the fire for breakfast. No, uh, of making. We um, always just had scrambled pancakes. Making the foil packages of they. So we called them hobo dinners, but um, foil packages of like ground meat and vegetables, like potatoes and carrots and stuff. You sort just like a quiche. No, you <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> you can't make a quiche when you're camping. <laughs> I have no. not often gone camping. Um, no, we would make these at camp too when we would have the nights when you eat, you know, when you eat off at a campsite so that the kitchen doesn't have to cook. Do you remember those? <sighs> yeah. We, Madeline and I have really different feelings at camp. <laughs> it was, <laughs> It's a very important, formative, and long time in my life. Yeah, um, for sure, me too. I just... Madeline didn't like it as much. Well, there were things about it I really liked. I mean, I kept going, and the things about it that I didn't like. Did um, you make it three years? Four. I want four years. Wow. And now, at this point in my life, I've become a very um, neat and fussy person when it comes to cleanliness so they fastidious yeah so just look at that's why even at the time that wouldn't have bothered me at all I would have enjoyed it because I was a child and now that I'm the adult that I am looking back at it I'm like ugh. the funny thing about camping though and I guess this is the deeper root of the problem I love camping you do not love camping no um sometimes my boyfriend says to me we should go camping and I'm like no 
<laughs> Nick can come camping with me and Josiah. I thought it, sure, that'd be kind of weird, but <laughs> y'all, y'all can go crazy on that. The thing about camping is once you're out in it, you stop feeling that need to like be super tidy and clean and stuff. It's like, no, I don't feel that way. It's the nice like flip side of that. You get to just like be in nature and I just feel completely uncomfortable because I can't get to the cleanliness level. You don't have to to go camping. (laughs) Like I'll never make you. I can't, I can't put enough sunblock on and then my hands are all sticky. (laughs) What I was going to say is these dinners were, you just make like a patty of meat and hack up some potatoes and carrots okay, and put it in a foil package. So it's like all one. And then one you put it in the embers mush. of the fire. Um, no, it's distinct pieces, but it all cooks like together. I don't know <laughs> how I'm not explaining this. I'm just They're large chunks jerk. of vegetables. I understand. <laughs> I understand what you're talking about. I'm sure the listeners do too. And they're just like, oh my God, please. If we have any <laughs> listeners at this point, um, I I can see when people stop listening to episodes on the <laughs> iTunes amazing. analytics. And, and is it during this point? It often directly correlates with when we go off on a wild tangent. So yeah, we didn't, you know, we didn't have food that was fantastical in itself, but we had food that was made fantastical with different magical items. So I chalk that up to a win. And Neil Gaiman is clearly concerned with having his characters eat. And that's all I can ask, honestly. That wraps up pretend food. All we have left to discuss now is our favorite badass lady. Badass lady meter. Our badass lady meter just is an opportunity for us to discuss our favorite female protagonists from the books that we've read and why they were, you know, important to us when young and important to us today. We are not saying every woman has to be a stereotypical badass. I have a lot of problems with the strong female character trope. Just putting that out there. Would you like to go first? Yes. My badass, my strong buttocks is... (laughs) Evane. She's the best. Um, And I rate her the quiet shimmer of a fallen personified star who then lives forever. Great rating. (laughs) So very specific. (laughs) You're rating her herself. (laughs) I, so we haven't talked too extensively about Lady Una other than her um, motivation for conceiving Tristran. She's a strong lady, man. She's an incredible character. Um, She spends, she said, 60 years enslaved. And mostly as a bird. Most of that as a bird. Um, All the while on a long silver chain. Um, It's just awful stuff. And in the end, she is able to go back home to her kingdom, but it's like at what cost her most of her life is mm-hmm. gone. Yeah. I also couldn't shake. I know that she was just her ears were just being described as elf ears um, in the way. Oh, that I they thought were they depicted, were cat ears. But I literally was thinking of, yeah, like a cat person. Yeah, um, like so a Khajiit. Yes. So I also couldn't help but like seeing her with like a cat nose oh, and I didn't like have cat eyes. Okay. I just kept going to this place with it and then I'd shake myself out of it. But it really added some flavor <laughs> to the reading. That sounds great. So I'll, I'll say that. That sounds um, great. And the, the flower charms that they sell and that she gives away to Dunstan. That sound really um, cool. I want one. Sounds so incredible. And 
just so much about that market reminded me of you as a kid and the things that you loved, like your little glass animal figurines and the fact that there were animal figurines that moved and rolled around and Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, so cool. I really want to go to that market. Una, Lady Una was really, really cool. Um, and I really respected just her fortitude. Um, and I can't even imagine being trapped as a bird all the time and also witnessing like, Oh, well, my son just definitely, walked by and there's nothing I can say or do about it but she's very self-possessed like she's she's got it under control even when she has a human again and it makes sense because she is from a line of pretty stoic folks um and you know it's probably for the best you guys well it's probably for the best that she was enslaved honestly because she probably would have been murdered by one of her brothers if she hadn't been those guys is bad news Um, so I don't know it all works out in the end is what I'm saying and my rating of Lady Una is a perfect crystal snowdrop that survives a quest without breaking anything happening to it. It's kind of crazy, actually, when it comes down to it, that at the end, Tristan's like, oh, it's still here in my pocket. It's magical. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's a spell. It's but right if I in my pocket. Exactly. If I had, I don't know, a, an artifact like that, um, an artifact. I would crush it immediately. Yeah, probably. It, I just pictured it as like, like one of those. accidentally inhale it and then <laughs> choke to death on it. <laughs> as you fall off a cliff. <laughs> as, as like your pants fall down. <laughs> Grace knows. Uh, um, <laughs> we loved reading this book. Thank you again, Rachel, for requesting you, Rachel. and that we cover it. Um, coming up, we have another quest, but also something we're very excited to do. It's a holiday special with gonna, one of our favorite characters of all time. That's right. Bar none. Um, it's coming out. We're going to try to put it out just before Christmas. Um, so if you're like feeling the holiday vibes, if you celebrate Christmas or any other holiday in December, I think I think you'll be able to enjoy this. Mm-hmm. Um, so watch out for that. Uh, we're sorry this episode was a week late, but I've been sick. Um so if you would like to make a request of your own, you can get in touch with us on the internet. We are at dragonbabiespodcast.com. That is our website. We're on Twitter at dragonbabiespod, Instagram at dragonbabiespodcast, and you can also just send us an email at dragonbabiespodcast at gmail.com. Madeline, do you have any other ways for people to contact us? Uh, owl, you can Good. scream it into the night sky. Mm-hmm. You can attach it on the leg of a boyd that's not an owl, like a pigeon. Or oh, a boyd. A okay. boyd, <laughs> like a pigeon or a crow. Um, you can use a palantir. Mm, yeah, all great options. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. And I think that's it. So until next time. I'm Grace. And I am Madeline. Goodbye. Bye.